Praise God, dear brothers and dear sisters. Um, I have something that I, that I wanted to share with you. We're in our, in our series about the armor of God. And today we're talking about the feet of the preparation of the gospel of peace. So feet that have shoes that are prepared uh, to proclaim the gospel. Now, what I want to do today is... Uh, touch a little bit on our current um, situation, like in our, you know, in our state or our, our country or our cities or whatever, um, just because I think it's very applicable to today's sermon. And I also want to look at the gospel, that's what we're going to be talking about today, the gospel, in a little different light than I usually uh, look at it. So, Let's read Ephesians 6.15. You don't have to open there. Just listen. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Um, this is, there's a list in Ephesians that goes through all these things that we're supposed to be wearing as believers. And one of these things, not the first, not the second, uh, but one of these things is the shoes or sandals that are the preparation to spread, to spread the gospel of peace. Um, I would like to first look at just a couple of definitions, not even definitions. I don't want to scare you guys in, um, from listening to me by saying words like definitions or stuff. So I, I just want to like lay the foundation, like what is the gospel? So uh, the gospel, Revelations 14, 6, 7, and I, I, I specifically am choosing verses that usually like we don't go to when we talk about the gospel because I think this is a very important aspect of this topic. Um, it says the following, I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel or everlasting gospel to preach to those who live on earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Behold, I present to you the gospel. So when, we, when, when, when I say, all right, Tell me what the gospel is. Usually we'll go to uh, Jesus died for our sins. He rose on the third day. And he loves us so much that, you know, if we come to him, he'll save us. But the, and that is true. That is true. We're not going to, you know, say anything outside of that. But there is a part to the gospel. There is a part to wearing these sandals, these shoes that I want to touch on. And, and, and this is the part. When we're talking about shoes that Paul was talking about in Ephesians... These were the equivalent of today's cleats, okay? And you guys probably heard this a million times, especially if you guys, like, been to Bible college or Bible school or some kind of, you know, basic Bible, like, they will tell you this. So the, the shoes that we're reading about in Ephesians aren't, like, flip-flops or, you know, the, like, sandals that, that you could, like, buy at Nordstrom or see a picture of, like, a Roman soldier wearing. They're not the same. That, that's not what they were wearing. They, were, they would wear like leather shoes that had literal cleats, like pieces of metal, pieces of, 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 of glass and other things that were put on the bottom and of their shoes, on the sole of their shoes. And basically these 
shoes would help them stand in battle because that's how the Romans fought. If you guys, uh, if, if you think of like a Roman soldier, you don't think of a guy who's running around, you know, crazy. You think of a guy who has a shield that's almost as big as him. He has all this like metal on him. This dude is barely walking, okay? He's not running, I promise you. And he is standing, in fact. Most of all, he's just standing. He's using the shield to, to protect himself. And he's using like a little sword, right? It was, it was a very, it was a different tactic than what most people used back then. But it was a tactic that required a person to be grounded in something, okay? A person not to move, especially when there's like a million people running at you and there's like, four lines of Roman soldiers, your job was literally to just hold the line, if you were a Roman soldiers, a soldier, and to, first of all, hold the first attack, and then to, like, use the sword and the shield, we're not going to get into it, to, to, like, start moving, slowly, systematically moving forward. The Roman shoe, right? This is the shoe that we're talking about. We're not talking about sports shoes. We're talking about, like, cleats, the most vicious kind of cleats you can think of. And uh, trust me, I know about cleats. I was actually recently just playing with um, Mark, I think, and some other guys. And um, I, Mark made me realize why we have shins, shin guards on, uh, during soccer. Because, and he didn't even have, I'm sure, the, the cleats that the Roman soldiers had. But I felt that. And a week later, I still would feel it right here on my shin, his cleat to my leg. Um, you, you learn to respect the other person with a shoe like that. The thing is, when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about these words. Listen to verse 7. He said with a loud voice, this angel with the gospel, Fear God. Give him glory. Now, right away, when, you know, the culture that we live in, the, the, the way that we're brought to, like, respect other people's feelings, our feelings, and I get that. When we hear that, a lot of times we'll just braze over that. Like, that's not to us. Like, fear God, they're obviously meaning something else than, you know, fearing God. Give him glory, like, that could mean a million things. That could mean, like, just whispering a prayer once a week to God, you know, or it could mean to give a little bit of money to the church. Like, you know, we, we, we like to, to, to put things into, like, subjective categories. At least I do. I know I do. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Listen, do you guys hear that? Because, so the, the gospel, because the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made heaven and earth, seas, springs of water. So today I would like us to just very shortly look at the gospel in this light. Okay, it's a different light than we're used to, uh, to hearing but it's an important light. And it's not, I would say it's not for really us. I, I believe, I, I truly believe most of the people here are saved, like legit in love with God. And I, I, I'm happy with that. Like I, I'm, I'm joyful. So the, the sermon is not really to like get you to believe the gospel. But it's uh, a sermon to let us uh, maybe take a step back and look at where we live, um, what's happening around us. And what does the gospel have to do with all of it, okay? So, if we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about two things. Firstly, Revelations 14, Jesus is king. Like, legit, Jesus is the king. He is in control, 
and he deserves our worship, okay? He deserves. Like, there's going to be a time of judgment, there's, and this God who made heaven, earth, and everything in it is going to be judging the world. So he is king, and not only is he king, and we just, we just have to wake up every day and say, okay, Jesus is king, we got that box checked off, and we can do our thing. The second part of it, and if you could just listen here, Romans 1.16, we just read this, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel has power in it, and not just some kind of power to make you look better or feel better. It has the power to save you, and it has the power to save people that you preach the gospel to. But again, this is the gospel of God. We're going to talk about a different gospel, and I want you to just, just us to pay, clo pay close attention here. That different gospel does not have the power of the gospel. It does not have the power to save. It says, and Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I mean, that is a powerful gospel. Any single person, whatever you've done, whatever your past is, the gospel has the power to save you, like to transform you, to give you eternal life. You'll be in heaven with God forever. It has that power, but it, it has to be the gospel. Like, it has to be the real deal. And he says to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it, listen to this, for in it, the gospel, what do you see? Are we, oh, it's on the screen. For in it, uh, verse 17 says, if you guys can uh, go to verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God, meaning the purity of God, the power of God, the fact that God is always right, the righteousness is revealed, it's shown. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So we see here, and I just want to go quickly over this. The gospel tells us two things. Jesus is king, and Jesus' gospel, the real gospel, requires total submission to the gospel. So the gospel isn't like a, a, a theory, you know? It's not just like a good, like, you could try this out, and if it doesn't work, we'll give you your money back. That's not how the gospel works. It is, you, you receive it, you believe it, and you have to fully submit yourselves to it. Now, again, as I said, I believe many of us here have already done that. So when I'm speaking this sermon, I'm speaking to the world that we live in. And for us, again, to think about what kind of gospel does the world believe in? Because the world also has a gospel. Do you guys do you get this? The world also has a gospel. Most of the people that you ask if they believe in the gospel, they, they'll say yes, literally. Still, we still live in a country that still does that. But there is one gospel, and it requires for us to believe that Jesus is king and that he requires all of our submission. So there is, in Romans 1, same chapter, we read verse 21, 22, a story of how the gospel was being replaced. 
For even though they knew God, listen to this, the gospel being replaced. It's a different gospel here. They did not honor him as God. So people see God, they realize he, he's righteous, and they, they kind of they feel convicted, but they make a decision, this verse says, to not honor him as God, meaning to not acknowledge that he requires my full submission, my full obedience, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and listen to this, exchanged. People can exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This basically says that people back in the day would uh, kind of feel convicted that there is a God, but they would choose to worship things that were created by God, like animals, like the stars, like other human beings. And weirdly enough, people still do that today. People still worship things that are outside of God. Yes, they might not be as material uh, as, as they once were, but people still worship with all of their heart, with all of their finances, with all of their, their anger. They worship and they protect and they fight for and they stand with uh, certain idols, certain uh, things that are not the gospel and they, they may, may, may look like the gospel, they may sound like the gospel, but they are dangerously far from the gospel. And their danger is in the fact that they resemble the gospel a little bit or maybe even a lot. And a lot of people go, well, that, that's, that's kind of a good idea, isn't it? That's kind of a good theory, justice, peace, uh, love, no war. That, those are good ideas, are they not? Those are good ideas. But is that the gospel? And so the gospel of God which is the fact that Jesus died for our sins. It requires our submission. And I want to take you just very shortly into a story. The humanistic gospel. You guys know what humanistic means? Humanistic basically means like human or around a human being, something about a human being. So humanistic gospel is basically a gospel that is focused on the person, on, on a human being, on a homo sapien, on a on a person of, of the flesh, and not on the one who it's supposed to be focused on, and that is God. So, um, we read in Judges 17.6, this phrase, In those days there was no king in Israel. Listen, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. You guys get that? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So the story of the humanistic gospel begins, and I just, there's many stories in the Bible. I want to take you through one story in Judges, and it starts out like this. There was a time in Israel where there was no king, and everyone did whatever they felt like doing. And so here's how the story goes. There was a Levite who had a concubine, which is like a half-wife, and this Levite with a concubine were traveling through Israel, stopped at a person's house, and... Uh, people in that village surrounded that house and said, we want to basically rape this Levite. And when the owner of the house said no, they raped this Levite's concubine instead. They killed her. Uh, the, the Levite took her, and this is a gruesome, it is a disgusting story, but I believe the Bible gives it to us for a reason. This is a picture of what happens when you replace the gospel. He cut her up into 12 pieces and sent her to every tribe in Israel. And people 
It's, it's like people who were living in this dark age, if you can call it. There was no king. A law, order was all, all gray. People did whatever they wanted to. And literally, uh, Judges 1 through Judges 21 is a story of that. People doing whatever they feel like doing at whatever time they feel like doing. These people, it's like they, they begin to wake up. This body part of a concubine literally wakes them up from their sleep, right? Their spiritual sleep. And they go, okay, where are we as a nation right now? What are we doing? What, what is this that just happened? Is this okay? And everyone, weirdly enough, says this is not okay. At least the 11 tribes do. The 11 tribes look at this cut up woman that was raped and killed and they say, this is not okay. They come to the tribe of Benjamin and this happened in the area of where Benjamin lived and they say, give us the people who did this. We need to punish this. This is too far. Yes, we don't have a king. Yes, we don't have like certain law standards, but this is too far. This crosses the line. This right here. And Benjamin goes, this doesn't cross our line. You're crossing our line. We're not giving you these people. And they don't give them the people. And so the little tribe of Benjamin literally calls out all their soldiers, 20-something thousand soldiers, and goes against a 400,000 army of the people of Israel. And I want to read to you. Here's the 11 tribes calling for peace. They're calling. They're like, dude, something is wrong here. Something is wrong in the world we live in. There's this, this is not right. Like they can't pinpoint it, but they, they've, and I, I'll prove to you and I'll show to you why they can't pinpoint why it's wrong and why Benjamin doesn't want to give in and why they begin to fight in a civil war. They can't pinpoint anything, but they just feel like, man, there's just no peace in the situation. Something is off. And they begin a war. But before the war, this is what the 11 tribes say. Judges 20, 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may take them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. Sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. Benjamin says, No, we're not giving them to you. And you know why Benjamin did that? Because Israel was no better. Yeah, Benjamin and the other 11 tribes were one country. And I refuse to believe for a single second that Benjamin uh, was just way worse than the 11 tribes. And the 11 tribes are always just nice and holy and following after God and doing whatever God says. And now whatever they feel like doing while Benjamin was doing whatever they felt like doing and had no king. You know why? Because the Bible says so. The Bible says Israel didn't have a king and everyone in Israel did whatever they felt was right. And then there came a, a certain time where everyone, at least from one side, said, whoa, we just gone way too far. But it wasn't enough. Benjamin wasn't, wasn't pleased with that argument. Benjamin was like, no. Prove it. Who says this is, this is so wrong that we have to kill these guys or give them to you? Prove it. We're not giving them to you. And so a civil war breaks out. I want to prove to you just real quickly that Israel was as bad as Benjamin. Judges chapter 1, the first book of Judges. Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' like, second leader and 
kind of kept the people of Israel in check, dies. You know what happens? The first chapter, right where he dies, they disobey God and don't conquer the land. Second chapter, they begin to practice idolatry. Second chapter of Judges, Israel as a country begins to practice idolatry. Meaning, this isn't just like coming into a temple and bowing to a god. I don't suggest that you read. I, I wouldn't suggest that you don't, you know, like study it. But the worship of idols was disgusting back in those days and still in, in these days. Think about it as Satanism, okay? When you think about Satanism, it's kind of the same thing. It's literally the same thing. They had goat demons and all kinds of Baals, Baal Peor, Baal this, Baal that. And it was disgusting, human sacrifice, all kinds of weird, weird stuff happening, straight up demonic. This is what Israel begins to do. Chapter 2 of Judges. Where, By the way, the story that I'm talking about is chapter 19, 20, and 21, the last three chapters. And then there's literally like 10, I mean, I mean probably a couple of hundreds of years of this stuff getting worse and worse. And there's, there's cycles. The Bible says so many times in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3 through 18, Israel, not Benjamin, Israel did evil in the sight of God. And then God punished them. And then God took Othniel, one of these, these leaders, and he beat uh, the, 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 the nations that were punishing Israel. Then Israel did evil again, the Bible says. And God sends Ehud. Then Israel did evil again. And Deborah and Barak saved Israel. Then Israel did evil again. Then Jephthah came. And you know what happened after that? Israel, not Benjamin, Israel did evil again. And when God says evil, he means evil. He means evil. He means what happened to the Levites' concubine. He means all the, the bouquet of sin that we read in, in Romans. When people refuse to submit themselves to the gospel of God, refuse to obey the gospel of God, evil happens. Biblical evil. Samson and so many other so many other leaders, they were all brought up to God when the people of Israel would say, okay, God, we're going we're gonna to try to fix ourselves. And then they would start doing evil, right? When they felt a little bit comfortable. So Israel was bad. Benjamin was bad. Israel comes to Benjamin and says, your bad is worse than our bad. You have to give us these people. We got to kill them. Benjamin says, you're, you're as bad as us or even worse. We're not giving them to you. Civil war breaks out. You know what happens in that civil war? God punishes Benjamin, right? Who remembers the story? Did God punish Benjamin? I mean, it's a, you guys know, right? No, he didn't just punish Benjamin. He also punished Israel. People of Israel, 400,000 people as an army, come to God and say, who attacks first? God says they attack first. Or, you know, a certain tribe attacks first. Okay. They attack first. You know what's the outcome of that first battle? 22,000 Israelites dead. Israelites, not Benjamites. They come back, they cry, they weep before God. And you know what they do? They humble themselves, they pray, and they repent of their sins. No. They say, God, who attacks now? Come on, we got a bigger army. We can do this. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Go for it. So they attack the second time. And you know what happens? Who wins? The little tribe of Benjamin again. You see, God was uh, punishing Israel by allowing other nations to attack them before. Now God is punishing Israel by allowing Israel to kill Israel. Israel is literally killing itself. And that's the most effective way of doing it. Because whoever wins, they both lose. 
right? Like, yeah, we won. We only lost 10,000 people. They lost 30,000. Well, together you lost 40,000. And nobody from the surrounding nations lost a single person. So in case they ever want to attack you, you guys are dead. But, you know, th there's this sense of like, this, this is just isn't right. And we got to establish peace. There has to be peace because this was too far. Okay, so they attacked the third time. The third time... You know who wins? Benjamin finally loses. So three battles, Israelites, 40,000 people dead. Benjamites, 25,000 people, 100 dead. You know what that means for Benjamin? They have 600 men left in their entire tribe. And if those 600 men wouldn't run into the cliffs, the people of Israel were so mad at this point that their big army couldn't beat the small army. They wanted justice so bad. They wanted peace established in the land so bad, but they were still so refusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in their terms, it was the law of God, the ordinances of God, that God is king over Israel. God does have a good law for Israel. And if they follow that law, they'll live. They're still refusing that. They want to establish peace of their own. Go for it. Knock yourselves out. Seriously. Knock yourself. Have a blast. Have a blast. Go kill yourself. And God is allowing Israel to punish Israel. You know what they do afterwards? The people of Israel, they gather together, they start crying, and they realize um, one problem. They're like, wait, one of our tribes has literally just been killed, like fully, like full genocide. We're talking about women, children, genocide, right? It's not like at this point, the people of Israel were pretty mad. And so they're killing everyone. These 600 men run away. And how I know it's, it was women and children, do you know how I know? Because these 600 men couldn't find wives for themselves from their tribe. This was a total genocide of a tribe. And the people of Israel are like, okay, wait, actually there's another problem here. There's going to be 11 tribes. That's a bummer. Yeah, that's a bummer. You guys still want to establish peace on your, by yourselves? You guys still want to kind of to fix things by yourselves? Or do you want to finally submit to the gospel of God? No, no, no. We want to establish peace by ourselves. Okay. Um, they come up with this genius plan. Let's go kill everyone in this other town of Israel, uh, Gilead or Jabesh Gilead. Saul was from here, if I'm not mistaken. Let's go kill the entire thing, take all the women, and let's give it to these men. So they do that, and there's still not enough women for these 600 people that they've now forgiven from the tribe of Benjamin. And they go, okay, we still have an issue. Let's repent, right? Let's finally repent. Let's finally come before God. Let's submit ourselves to the gospel. Like this, this wisdom of our own, this, this uh desire to be right, this desire to establish peace isn't working for us. No, they uh, devise a, a genius plan 2.0 to kidnap uh, more women from their own country and give them to the people of Benjamin. I mean, it's just one genius plan after another. And you could see how the nation is literally blossoming in its own lack of gospel. Lack of of gospel, lack of submission to God's laws, lack of submission to Jesus, to God as king. And you know what the story ends with? Take a wild guess. What does the story end with? 
Israel and Benjamin together come and they repent before God. They say, God, you taught us a, a lesson. You taught us one right here. We killed ourselves bad. We almost destroyed a nation. We kidnapped. We genocided a, a tribe and almost a tribe and then a city. No, they actually, this is how the story ends. And I actually want you to open to this because this is pretty scary. Judges 21 verse 25. Listen to this. In those days, last verse of Judges, it, it summarizes everything that just happened and everything that happened in the chapters before. There was no king in Israel. You know what everyone did? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And to the people of Israel, this felt so right. This, this, just, this, this, this was just like, oh, right there. That's, that's perfect. What we just did was what we felt like doing. The results are good. We feel like we won. It's chaos. There's war. There's genocide. Because the gospel, the real true gospel, isn't in effect. The true gospel, listen to this, the true gospel requires every person to humble themselves before God as king and to accept his rules, his standards, and listen to this, this is really important, and not just the ones that they feel like applying to themselves or to others at that time. Do you guys get that? So the humanistic gospel, it just, it looks at the commandments of God, and by the way, the commandments of God are written in our moral DNA. There's, there's been like communists, if you read their manifesto, it's like, well, that sounds kind of like heaven, it does. Everyone lives together. Everyone shares everything. There's no poverty. There's no pain. There's, everything is just free, literally free. You walk into a store, you grab a piece of clothing, you walk out, and you grab one because you're honest. You don't grab 20 and you know, sell the, others, the other 19 on OfferUp. You buy one because you're honest, and you use it until it's, it's worn out, and then you go buy another one. That, but that implies that the person... Who's, who's, who's writing this is thinking, okay, I can take this from the gospel. I can take that from the gospel. I can take this good commandment. I'll apply it to my country, and everything's going everything's gonna to blossom. That's not how it works. You can't just randomly wake up one day and say, you know what? That is wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong. But where's your foundation? Where, where's the proof? Where are your arguments? What are you going to argue? That you feel like it's wrong? Well, someone else feels like it's right. Where are you going to go with this? Are you guys going to fight it out? Go ahead. Knock yourselves out. And that's, that's what we read in Romans. I don't know if you guys caught that. In Romans chapter 1, it literally talks about that. And it says God literally gives them over to the depravity of their mind. And they do things that don't fit. They don't make sense. They're not logical because people are establishing their own gospel. People are trying to say this is wrong. But the other person say, no, no, no. Um, that is wrong. And they begin to fight. Can I, can I read you an example as we finish here of a perfect gospel? Uh, this, this is the gospel of Christ, and it's not even from the Bible. This is a book written 300 years before Jesus was born. 
by a heathen. Here's what he said. He's proving to these other philosophers, it's Plato, he's proving to the other philosophers that there's no such thing as justice or real, true, uh, like a, a real, true, just person here on earth. He says, everyone's fake. You, uh, he's like, I, I just, I feel it. Everyone's fake. And he's right. Everyone is sinful. Everyone does lack justice. Everyone needs the gospel to lead them into the right direction. And he says, you know, let's... Um, he says, let him, this, this truly just person, be the best of man, and let him be thought as the worst. Then he will be put to the test. He says, the way to test a person is let him be considered the worst, and in reality, he's the best. Does that remind you of someone? Does it remind you of Jesus? A little bit? Like, literally God, the perfect man, considered the worst of man and killed on the cross, and here's what he says. You know what they'll do to that person? You know what people will do? He says, they will scourge him, rack him, bound him. He will have his eyes burnt out. And at last, after suffering every kind of evil, he will be impaled. Does that remind you of someone? Maybe impaling? Piercing? Does, does that remind you of someone? And this is, I, I do believe this is not a prophecy. This is like a, a people with their own reasoning coming to this conclusion that if there was this person, this just, truly uh, just person, a person who really has the correct set of morals, other people would not understand him because other people are not just by themselves. They don't have that peace uh, of the gospel by themselves. And so they would kill him. They would impale him, he says. They would crucify him as it happened to Jesus. And so there was one perfect person, one perfect example, one perfect Savior who presented one perfect gospel, and his name was Jesus Christ. And so here's what Jesus tells us. Here's what Jesus told me when I came to him. He said, listen, Andre, I am king, and I now have to control every part of your life, not just the parts that you feel like giving to me. I have a moral code. I have this beautiful book that I give to you. And you have to submit yourselves to the entirety of this book. Not just to the parts that you feel are applicable at that time. You can't just pick and choose. Like we see in the world today, certain areas. Like, you know, we, we don't have justice here or there. Like, yes, we don't. But the problem isn't with us not having justice. We're, we're sinful. We're, we're horrible. We know. But the problem is, is that we've actually way back have been rebelling against God in every, every aspect of life. In schools, right? Like in our nation, in schools, against prayer, against Bible reading, in, in marriage, with homosexuality, right? In every area of our life as a country, if you reject God, you can't pick, you can't choose one single area and say, I want this, because that is the definition of a humanistic gospel. That is the definition of a person saying, I feel like that's correct, so I'm going to use it. The Bible calls us to submission to the gospel in its entirety, and that means reading the word of God. That means being totally, totally dependent on God. And if we as a nation, as a city, as people who work in schools, in businesses, in healthcare, in all kinds of places, people who go to school, right? If we present ourselves and present the gospel in this way, it is a little bit strong, we might say, but at the same time, it is exactly what we need today. It is the gospel of peace. It is the gospel that can dig in and can stand ground. That is the only gospel 
that there is, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, that is the only gospel that can save. That is the only gospel that, um, that Jesus talks about when he says, come to me all who are weary, right? All who have this lack of peace, all who are restless, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I'll give you what you want, but you have to submit yourselves in your entirety to the entirety of my gospel, not parts of it. Let's stand. Let's pray. And maybe there's someone here who has not done that yet. I would highly encourage you that you do. And as we go into our lives, let us remember this one thing. We don't need to add anything to the gospel. We simply have to accept the gospel for what it is. The most powerful thing on earth. God in the flesh came among people, died on the cross, took the sin of every single person, rose on the third day, and gives life to anyone who believes. That is my gospel. That is the Bible's gospel. That is Jesus' gospel. And that is what we believe. That is what's going to bring our nation back into prosperity. Yes, it brings nations to prosperity. Nations don't kill themselves then. It brings countries together. It brings families together. And it will bring your and my restless soul together as we unite with Christ.